Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak with art historian Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen, author of Modern Art and the Remaking of the Human Disposition. The book, which came out late last year from Chicago University Press, offers a deep analysis of how European artists at the turn of the 20th century dramatically broke with the long-standing conventions for posing the human figure. And Emmeline correlates this change with a seismic shift in Western society's understandings of human consciousness. Given the present-day acceleration of machine learning and technological forms of vision and visual reproduction, it's not difficult to draw parallels between our own time and the period that Emmeline examines. Listening to what follows might feel something like viewing a deep-field space telescope image in ultra-high res. Zoom in, and you'll find worlds within worlds. Zoom out, and you'll see that the entire shape is so large there's no end in sight. The details of this conversation are expert level, hence Carly doing all of the heavy lifting on the new models side. But there's a macro pattern in the research, a collection of perspectives, that you'll likely find useful for thinking about the present and the future. It's a conversation that, thanks to Emmeline, is driven by the kind of knowledge that can only come from more than a decade of applied work. And we're excited to be able to share this ultra-high-def reading of a cultural turn analogous to the now. A few notes. To see images of the key works that Emmeline discusses, check out the full episode post on Patreon or Substack. For channel listeners, we'll post them in the channel server. Of course, best of all is to just get the book and lose yourself in the more than 100 plates illustrating Emmeline's research. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is art historian Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen. You might want to listen to this episode twice, so let's get into it. Well, hi, Carly. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you. You were actually the first person that reached out to me when my book was published, and I was incredibly excited to be (laughs) like sharing a forum with someone like the Cobra Snake, who's like a (laughs) phantom semi-debauched youth. Um, I didn't think now as a scribe in Williamstown that that would come back into my world. And then the only other historian that I've seen you have on the show, I'm blanking on the name but that incredible excavation of moral panic in the 1980s. Yes, Richard Beck's We Believe the Children. Yes. So I'm an art historian. I have a past with contemporary art, but I am a pretty consciously historically oriented person. I work in the Williams graduate program and I live between Williamstown, New York and Florence. Cool. (laughs) Well, I love the array of what we see behind you in your office. There are, I think, Greco-Roman figures, piles of library books. There are like a lot of 19th century caricatures and other, like I was using my bulletin board to figure out the images that I wanted in the book, because in the end I had, I think, 138 images in my book. Images are really expensive and really complicated. I mean, I have to say that's one of the pleasures of your book. You have a lot of things I'd never seen before, like these Rodin sketches, I mean, really like sorted stuff too. Oh, yeah. For the images alone, it's definitely worth getting the full hardback. Thank you, Carly. You're helping me with yeah. my sales. The print run, you know, it's a thousand. It's only a thousand. No way. I know. And with some presses, it's way less. I mean, but this is like a tennis shoe drop. Or I something. know. They should just like, like big it up. Be yeah. Like, no, yeah. Yeah, you better <laughs> head over to U Chicago Press and buy it now uh, or order it through your local bookstore. Because... Especially because they're doing tiered pricing. Yeah. Uh, early birds. It's only. Uh... <laughs> no, but Emily, you're like a sincerely engaging writer. So to that end, maybe we should get into the subject of this conversation, which is your book, Modern Art and the Remaking of the human disposition. So this book has incredible depth, but could you just sketch the contours of what your book encompasses and also maybe how you set out to structure it? So, you know, in very schematic terms, the book is, it's an attempt to show how in European art in the decades around 1900, new concepts of subjectivity were materialized concretely in works of art by means of new dispositions of the body. More specifically, I'm trying to understand why a range of artists in Europe at this moment working, and I think crucially working across different national contexts and across different media, are beginning to abandon the ponderation torsioning convention. And I look at diverse cases. One of them is in the relationship between Siraz Grandjot and his response to the response 
of that painting, Poseuse, in Klimt's mural, The Beethoven Frieze, and in Václav Nijinsky's ballet, Afternoon of a Fawn. These works are very unique because of the deliberateness with which they're engaging with the kind of metaphorical dimensions of human body language and the deliberate way in which they take up ontological questions that are still quite urgent today, like what is human consciousness? What are its limits? Is consciousness a defining feature of the species that named itself in 1758 Homo sapiens? Does consciousness means human beings are something special in the world. To briefly recap, Emmeline's book takes note of the way depictions of the human form change around the turn of the 19th century and examines this phenomenon via the work of three disparate artists, the French painter Georges Seurat, the Austrian painter Gustav Klimt, and Russian dancer and choreographer Václav Nijinsky. Through an analysis of their work and contemporaneous media, the book proposes a correlation to the way humans were newly perceiving their own consciousness, or even really what makes a human human. Before we go deeper, though, let's get a mental image of the work being addressed. Let's start with Seurat. The cover of the book features a painting by George Seurat that is explored in depth. The work is called Pazuzu and significantly contains, as part of its composition, another painting by Seurat, the Grand Jatte. Emmeline, could you describe that painting for our listeners here, perhaps starting with the full title? It's a Sunday on the island of Grand Jatte-1884. He puts the date in as part of the title, exhibiting it in 1886, I think, as a way of telegraphing to the audience, like, this took two years to paint. <laughs> I'm not Monet, who's at least giving us the illusion of dashed off instantaneity. This is a considered meditative grand tableau that has taken a long, long time to paint. And also, I think it's a marking of the historicity of a specific moment in modernity that's also being considered from an enormous perspective of the deep time of biological evolution, which is emblematized by the figure of that monkey who oh. has... <laughs> Actually, can you back up even a little more? Like, could you literally map out this painting, its scale and composition, its content, its handling of the media and stylistic innovations? So it's a massive tableau. Like, it's a life-size figural canvas with something like 50 figures captured, lots of people on a Sunday afternoon dressed up in ready-to-wear fashion with all of their hobbyist stuff. They've got their pets. Some of them are fishing. Some of them are reading. Some of them are knitting. And they're just arrayed on the banks of the Seine in this suburban leisure locale. T.J. Clark describes it as a place where the nouveau couche social, the emerging lower middle class, are coming to take possession of their leisure time on a Sunday. And it's a very deep perspective with the Seine on the left and trees on the right that kind of come in almost like stage flats. And the people in the very background are like a millimeter high and they're shrinking. They're, they're from the life size to the minuscule. Also, obviously, with Seurat, what he's known for is the dots. He's a pointillist. He invented this technique known as chromoluminarism. It's based on the scientific principle that colors combine in the eye, the persistence of vision, these little dots of pure color Seurat imagined would combine synthetically in the mind unconsciously. So that's a dimension of the unconscious mind that's just kind of baked into his technique. I mean, never mind that it doesn't actually work. <laughs> and that's a part of the painting that many people have discussed. But the aspect of the painting that my work is about is the very unusual way in which he poses the bodies of human figures in this work. So Seurat innovates this pointillism technique that's dependent on what is called persistence of vision, a pseudoscientific understanding of the eye itself working autonomously from the conscious mind, the eye itself mixing the color. This is relevant to Emmeline's book, but not the primary focus. So we're going to bracket pointillism for a moment and talk about bodies. And the bodies in Le Grand Chat are remarkable. Emmeline, how would you characterize the way Seurat renders human figures? 
they're organized according to a logic of frontality. There is no torsion or ponderation in these bodies. They are either frontal, dorsal, or in pure profile. And that dimension of the posing of human bodies in Seurat's work has, I'm arguing in this book, profound implications for a rethinking of what the interiority of a human being is. How does the human mind work? And it's a visual sign of a kind of whole epistemological rethinking of interiority that's taking place in the late 19th century. Yeah, I'm curious what the stakes of this were. Like, what was standing in opposition to Seurat's new forms? Could you just establish for us what the longstanding convention for rendering human bodies had been? Absolutely. I think standing in opposition to something is really the key idea because I'm arguing that this new postural language, it's incomprehensible except relationally and as a negation of what came before. And Right. So what did come before? I mean, today we have these so-called bodies of flat design, which sort of remind me of Seurat's figures. But what was the look and feel of human bodies in art leading up to Seurat's innovation in the late 19th century? I mean, in some way, what I'm going to give you is a fiction. It's a potted history of art history, one that was actually invented in the late 19th century. And it's kind of this history that we need to unpack because we still take it too much for granted and have failed to estrange the really concrete corporeal language through which it functions. So, I mean, basically, it's the received body of classicism. Perhaps stating the obvious, but we're referring here to bodies with volume, bodies where you can imagine their weight and their strength. You see muscles, skin, hair, the kind of bodies you would see if you went to the Met or to the Louvre and you looked at the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century painting galleries. There is a kind of baseline condition for artistic representation of the human being. And there's also an assumption in this period that the human figure is a metonymy for art itself in the Western context. And that until a certain world historical moment, which occurs in classical Greece, all forms of figural representation adhered to a rigid norm of posing the body. So like cycladic art, Egyptian art, pre-Bronze Age depictions of the human form. There was no torsion or turning in the body and relatedly no apparent responsiveness to gravity. So when did this quote, quote, naturalism enter into the artist's toolkit? So in the fifth century BC, classical Greek sculptors, by learning how to convey a shifting of weight from one foot to the other, they actually invented a visual form for the representation of the agentive properties of embodied selfhood rooted in some kind of entity that we would think of as mind or consciousness. It's a kind of mind-body dualism paradigm based on a kind of opposition of psyche and soma and the idea uh, that this highly concrete torsion in the body is the way that we get at this concept of mindedness. This figure of the minded body gets taken up in the history of Western art, I mean, paradigmatically in the Renaissance, and then it gets inculcated and reinstantiated in the scenario of art academies where these poses are reiterated and reiterated through the circulation of particular classical sculptures which circulate in casts and also through practices of actually physically posing models. And this pedagogical scenario is really, really important for me in setting up my argument in the kind of life history of Seurat, who was a very committed, aspirational student at the École des Beaux-Arts, where he really learned to convey these properties of the body in a very ritualized fashion. And then he departs from them. So there's this innovation in the 5th century BCE where artists begin to show the torsion and weight of a body around a central gravitational core. We'll later call this contrapposto. Not just the technique, but the convention, the norm of showing a human body this way, it becomes encoded by the 15th century and is emblematized by the Sistine Chapel ceiling and the works of painters like Botticelli and Leonardo. 
I mean, stop me at any time if I'm overgeneralizing here. No, I think to take big bites of time is incredibly important for European art history. It's something that like scholars of other geographies because of the like profound Eurocentrism of art history in Europe and America have done for a long time. But the hyper-specialization of European art history where, you know, a department will have like a Northern Renaissance specialist, a Southern Renaissance specialist has been determinative of the kinds of questions we ask in art history in ways that I actually think are conceptually crippling potentially. And now as we're undoing the Eurocentrism of art history by changing the kinds of people that actually get hired and have the opportunity to actually study art history for their living, which is like a massive privilege. Obviously, it's going to change and you may well have like one Europeanist in a whole department. One of the things that I've tried to do in this book was take a provincializing view of Europe in order to estrange some things that are taken for granted. I mean, I love that idea of Europe as provincial because, of course, if anyone has spent time outside of Europe, particularly in like China or Brazil or India, you know that Europe feels like a toy train village by comparison. But back to this Western grand narrative for a second, could you say more about the idea of transference? Like, I'd be curious what Latter-day Renaissance painters saw. Like, do you think that the Greek sculptors themselves held this idea of mindedness when they were developing contrapposto, or is that more just a latter-day projection? But, but basically, there's a convention that is forged by classical Greek sculptures, torsion and ponderation in the body, whether Greek sculptors were perceiving like, oh, let's twist this body and place some weight on the foot so we can show that there's a mind at work here that's directing this physical body. I have no idea. I mean, in some way, I mean, we can analyze Greek texts and think about what that really meant, but certainly it becomes a convention and a norm starting in the Renaissance. Like, you know, I quote in the introduction of the book, Leonardo says, you know, it is necessary to place the figure on his feet so that it is clear that he is lively and not asleep. So the very idea of this responsiveness to gravity, this twisting, is how you secure the illusion of some kind of active psychological presence in this body. And that's very curious. There's nothing self-evident about that, really. But then this brings me to the question of, well, why is it important to show that the human has interiority? Why is it important to show that they have a spirit? Is there like a God factor here? Like how the human relates to God? God is also being portrayed in human form. What's going on there with that? That's a... There could be a million reasons. I have not thought so much about the, the history of religion. What I think of is, is the word like am or soul. I mean, Alberti, he gives the example of the boat with all of the different apostles of Christ expressing their wonder at the transfiguration with different gestures so that you know that each one of them is a unique person responding to the movements of their own soul. Hmm. And not everyone's just going to be like in a Hitler salute all at once, like, lo, he's transfigured. No, (laughs) everybody has to respond uniquely and independently. And that's the way that you convey the presence of a soul in the human being. And I saw, I don't know, religious frameworks aside, I would say what's important is this idea of soul. And in this configuration of the human body, we have that represented by a body that is subservient to a mind. An intelligence served by organs. Right. And in your book, you put an emphasis on forms of motion that are particular to humans, to the human species, like hand gestures, face gestures. Could you say a little bit more about that? And also maybe here we can find a bridge from this classical body to the way that Seurat is newly rendering the human form. Okay, thank you, Carl. I think this brings me to an aspect of my project, which I increasingly believe it's what was most important for forming the argument and kind of understanding what was going on. People might be surprised that there's still art historical work to be done about something as cliched as a sculpture like Rodin's Thinker and the transition that Rodin makes in corporeal convention. But basically, there are certain fundamental metaphors that I think are implicitly structuring this classical body, the idea of prehension hands that have the capacity to grasp. Uh. The Stoic philosophers think of mental comprehension as catalepsis, actually 
grasp. <sighs> it's actually physically embodied by the gesture of a fist clasping. It's the idea of comprehension. That's the etymology of the word comprehension. <laughs> and also ponderation, like weight, weighing, and that thought is weighing. And also that thought is a physical weight, that if you're thinking there's physical substance in your head that makes it go down. Right. These are like profoundly concrete ideas which kind of structure the conventions or the norms of corporeal representation in Western art. And when you think about it, I mean, I can't remember who said this. Kurt Danziger, I think, is talking about the history of metaphors in psychology. The effectiveness of archetypical metaphorical structures depends on their taken-for-granted status. Well, I'm just thinking about today what maybe has a similar status, like dominance, hierarchy, memes, straight lines, meaning dominant and a slanted line, meaning deferential or weaker. Obviously, this still persists today. This is an unmasking of metaphors, like what Sarah Kaufman says Nietzsche's doing in his philosophy. This is the visual unmasking of metaphors, at least in my estimation. So like with Klimt, when he has what I call the motif of the levitating head, the golden monkey sperm emojis, which appear in my chapter on the Beethoven freeze, that that is just an unmasking of the metaphor, thought is weight in the head that sinks it down. So all three of the primary artists your book addresses depart from this classical idea of the body that we've been talking about. This very Rodin-esque understanding of a body where thought has weight and ponderation is heavy. But before we get into Klimt, could we briefly go back to Seurat's Grand Jatte and talk about what happens to that prehensile tension, that human ability to comprehend? Could you give us a visual reading of the arms and hands of the figures in this Seurat work? Absolutely. I mean, certain kind of alchemy occurs when you actually state in words things that seem implicit. When you first look at the Grand Jot, like many of these figures don't have arms. Also, the feet are invisible. The hands in some, in some cases don't exist. And that's really crucial to the dystopian reading that many people have had of this picture, that these bodies lack agency because mm -hmm. agency is associated with manual grasp, hands, prehension, and also bipedalism, the capacity to walk and balance. And one of the things that late 19th century art historians said about the archaic choros and this transition to the classical body in Greek sculpture is that the chori looked that if you would like just gently push them, they would topple over. They have no poise. They have no internal center of gravity. And that is, I think, linked implicitly to the idea that they lack autonomy psychological autonomy. So this image of the Korai is going to come back to us when we talk about Nijinsky, I think, this flatness, this uh, feeling that you could topple them over. But actually, I wanted to just ask you, while researching and writing this book, you weren't only looking at artworks. You were also analyzing various forms of media to understand both the work's intention and reception. Yes. Could you say a word about your methodology here? So the method is putting four different kinds of data into conversation. First is the works by Seurat, the Beethoven Fries, the Nijinsky dance, and then the critical responses to these works. Then there's also a body of literature that emerged around 1900 that devoted itself to analyzing the distinct conventions of figural representation in art that was defined as pre-classical or primitive, and then fourth, a body of philosophical, scientific, and psychological literature in which new concepts of the relationship of mind and body and the sexual instincts and kind of what unconscious thought might be were being articulated and also circulated to a population hungry for new scientific research. The feedback loop thing is really, really important. Like, So one of the things that I learned while I was working on this project was that in 1879, and I believe this is the first one, but there could be different dates, the first press clipping agencies were formed. Well, wasn't the like wood pulp paper invented in the 1840s? Like before that, they had the printing press, but paper was super expensive. Yeah. So yeah. you still didn't have like, you know, mass media on paper until paper got cheap, which was like 
the 1840s, it was finally game on. We're operating in a completely transformed media landscape in this moment. And, you know, obviously there's more literacy, there's the emergence of a mass media and kind of print publications, but then there's also the feedback dimension. So these clipping agencies, by like 1900, there were numerous competing agencies. The one that Seurat subscribed to, the one that Rodin subscribed to, was called Argus de la Presse, named after the kind of the Greek, you know, hundred-eyed monster, all-seeing Argus de la Presse. So every time his name is mentioned in any review in Russia, in America, in numerous languages, in Poland, he is getting a clipping and he is archiving that and reading every single thing about his painting. And Grandjot, I found in the archives in Paris, all of his clippings about the Grandjot, there were like, I think, I can't remember, 60 or more clippings about this specific painting. The most important ones were hand copied out. (sighs) And I had interesting debates with the archivist, who copied this? You know, was it Seurat himself? I believe Seurat actually copied out the reviews because I believe he was obsessed with his press. But we had a handwriting analysis done and the name Poseuse that he gives to his next painting, this is the phenomenon of feedback, is an adjective that was applied to the Grand Jacques in one of the reviews that he copied. So they called the figures that appeared in Grand Jean Poseu. So he's reclaiming that term and he's determining it or whatever by having his own models nude, female, which is also a somewhat like new convention to even have access to, uh, well, I mean, I guess individual artists could paint female nudes, but usually in the academy, it would mostly be males. I mean, that's really relevant too. Like who's the body, who's the torsioning ponderous body who gets to be the subject of reflection consciousness. Is it a man or is it a woman? I mean, that's like utterly at stake in Pozo's gender. Totally. And do we know if it was men who were given female attributes? Well, at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, where he studied for four years, desperately trying, he really wanted to win the Prix de Rome. I mean, Nancy Ierson's important research made us understand this. He really believed in this system, which was part of why he didn't want to do landscapes. The importance of his work was to use the human body. But in that environment, predominantly male models. And one of my favorite images in the whole book is this amazing photograph from the archives of the Ecole des Beaux-Arts of this model, Gelon, who I know Seurat encountered at one point because he drew him as a student who's kind of in the pose of thinking being archived by (laughs) the Ecole des Beaux-Arts authorities, this incredible photograph from 1890 with like insane pathos. And it makes you really feel the kind of social world of these strange art academies where these strange rituals were taking place. Yeah. And actually, as you did with Grand Jacques, could you now give us a mental image of Pazuz? So it's more concrete for our listeners. Sure. So after the quote-unquote controversy of the Grand Jacques that I'm describing, which Seurat archives in his press clippings, he makes this painting, Poseuse, which he exhibits two years later, and it shows the Grand Jacques in his studio with the figures that were most scandalous in the Grand Jacques, this woman who I argue is kind of imitating a fashion mannequin with a monkey imitating her. They're figures that allude to unconscious thought processes and evolutionary biology. He takes the painting, shows it in storage in his studio, and he is orchestrating an ostentatious repose by arraying three naked female models in front of the painting in poses from the classical tradition. And part of my argument is to ascribe a source for the central pose, which is the Greek orator Demosthenes, who was represented on the facade of the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. And it's a statue that in the 19th century was renowned for conveying a profound depth of intellect and reflective consciousness. And so it's a kind of return to that concept of the subject, which I think is both a satire and elegiac. It's an understanding that something is actually lost when we give up this idea of the possibilities of rationality and reflective consciousness. And, you know, this is where my work on Seurat would be utterly unthinkable without the work that Jonathan Crary has done. And he makes the political stakes of this more than apparent. That's so interesting, this sense not just of progress where the old is simply jettisoned, but also a reflective understanding of what the cost of that progress is. Something that you do so well in this book and that I think Query likewise emphasizes is how the political stakes of an artistic statement are so strongly shaped by and even contingent upon media. 
when we look at a painting in a white cube, it's really easy to forget that it was forged by and probably first gained its cultural value within a complex network of contemporaneous media. Yes. I mean, Query's reading of Jericho's Raft of the Medusa makes us totally aware of this. And your reading of Seurat certainly does too. I mean, Wrath of the Medusa was almost like if they released uh, Titanic the movie in 1819. It was kind of like a tabloid event yeah. turned into a the equivalent of like a Marvel cinematic totally. 3D film or something. Yes. And it became like a traveling painting. Right. It went on tour. I mean, as yeah. did Le Grand Jatte, right? I would say that the tour that the Grand Jatte undertook was somewhat less august. Okay. Um, but it did go to Brussels. Okay. Um, but there is a kind of public sphere. I mean, I'm not going to get you guys going on the public sphere because I'm not going to be tricked into talking about like the internet <laughs> because I, I don't, I'm a Luddite and I don't fucking know. Um, but I think that what's really, really important for me, I mean, thousands of people sat together in a shared space and watched Nijinsky perform Afternoon of a Fawn and this kind of audience and public sphere that these works attracted was part of why I chose to work on them because the feedback is so important methodologically. It is. I mean, and so we think of feedback loops now, we think of millisecond feedback loops. I mean, the argument would be that it's very difficult for an artist to insert themselves into this process. So this ties to something I was thinking, which is like almost like the ideas coming from Darwin that things are more deterministic than they thought, that things affect people on the subconscious more. I know when you're talking about the Klimt painting, I mean, the eye shape is being almost like the peacock's tail and this idea that that evolved out of a, a sort of sexual competition, sexual attraction, mm. the idea is that there are these things scientifically you could deploy and they would evoke reactions <laughs> from people. Like there was a, even subconsciously, there was a scientifically proven thing you could deploy that would cause this reaction from the audience. And maybe that's kind of what you're talking about, like algorithmically. That it's just is absolutely it, in a way. It's it's the idea of aesthetic response. And this is what Query talks a lot about, is the idea of aesthetic response that bypasses consciousness and is eliciting automatic responsiveness. And that's why Darwin's theory of sexual selection, which is kind of, I'm very interested in the theory of sexual selection, which is basically an aesthetic feedback process, which actually shapes the morphology of biological organisms and produces their ornamental features as theorized by Darwin. And I think th the sexual selection, Richard Prum's brilliant work on the evolution of beauty and, you know, he calls sexual selection the crazy aunt in the evolutionary attic she is not spoken of. Like, you know, most of the reception of Darwin's work in the past 150 years, according to him, is based on the concept of natural selection. He probably overstates it because he's a great orator. That may be true in the sphere of science, but it is certainly not true in the sphere of aesthetics. I mean, all of the works that I am addressing in this book are engaged in some sense with the idea of sexual selection. I mean, we have like a theater of human mating rituals in the Grand Jatte laid out for us, not only a kind of menagerie of different life forms from the butterfly to the dog, to the monkey, to the human, but also, you know, the pairing off. So this woman with the monkey in the foreground is, you know, she's engaged in a, ma a mating ritual of some kind. Is she a prostitute? Are they a proper couple? That would be a very 1980s way of approaching the question. Um, <laughs> But it's about sexual selection in some form. In the Beethoven freeze, it is all about kind of these biological ornamental features and, you know, the sexuality dimension of all of this. I mean, we've got sperm at the conclusion of the painting. And then in Nijinsky, it's a different set of problems. It's a much more sophisticated one in certain ways because it's not about biological procreation, but about a kind of more Freudian idea of sexuality as kind of not about the contact of differently gendered reproductive organisms, but rather about sexuality much more broadly conceived and even infantile sexuality. And it's a dance about that. I mean, I also think of it as being like the, all of the stuff that, that makes it seem like there's all these factors exerting responses on us outside of our control. It's like there's also that loss of agency from the grasping, knowing uh, <laughs> or earlier figures. Yeah. Um, I also feel like there's something in terms of the unconscious or the subconscious and this world of dreams and all of these symbols and this whole other mysterious world going on deep within our, our minds. 
I think in much earlier paintings, like the gods and mystery and these great tragedies and stories and forces of nature, like that, all the mystery existed on the outside in the world. Mm. And now I feel like the, the mystery is all depicted as being like buried deep in inside mind. of us, maybe. Yeah, like that. Maria Stavrinaki has a beautiful way of putting that in her work on prehistory, which is the interiorization of deep time in the human psyche. You make a distinction in your book between embodiment and imagination, the influence of lived experience on the one hand and the power of abstract metaphor on the other. Maybe this would be the moment to unpack that. I mean, I think, you know, we now understand the historicity of the body and how the body somatically internalizes its milieu and reproduces that milieu through gestures, through the way that we move. You know, Marcel Mauss in in Techniques of the Body talks about even the historicity of techniques of swimming within the scope of one lifetime. So there's nothing stable at all about the body and things change. Like that's something that has been habitually said in relation to Manet, that what's going on affectively with his figures is mimetic of an actual lived change that's taking place in the metropolitan sphere in the late 19th century. And primary point of reference for many kinds of interpretations is Georg Zimmel's notion of the blasé affect, which has to do with a kind of like stimulus shield for an urban environment that's overwhelming. Um, Again, fangirling here, but, you know, I think the most beautiful articulation of some of that is Crary's chapter in Suspensions of Perception on the Manet dans la Serre. But I, I mean, I'm really interested in the historicity of body language and in changes in, in lived bodily practices. But I'm also really interested in these like deep metaphorical structures related to like cognitive linguistics, like things like animacy hierarchies that structure language or these primary metaphors that implicitly structure forms of thought. And those are much harder to assess from the point of view of habits of body language are changing. This is like, is there a historicity of gravity? Is, you know, is there a historicity of our hand? Yes, actually, but it's slightly different. And I had to be very careful in my book to be sensitive to both registers simultaneously. But I think in the end, I'm more interested in that imaginative cognitive register of metaphors, like thought is a heavy substance in my head, which is weighing it down Mm -hmm, or it's mm -hmm. not. But so that's kind of the, the distinction that I make a little bit between embodiment and embodiment and imagination. Uh Um, Uh-huh. Were the painters considering the, reproducibility at all of these works, the reprinting or them in smaller sizes for the public, would this maybe actually affect the way they're, I mean, even pointillism, you could imagine it's like pixels and they actually maybe look prettier made smaller. Um, And there's the frame element that's already like considered into the work. I mean, Seurat definitely was. I mean, some art historians have argued that the pointillism is uh, referencing a specific kind of um, printing process of the late 19th century. Yes, I think he's aware of that. I actually see the points more as like alluding to kind of biological matter at Mm. the minute level. Like one Belgian critic referred to the microbe of the dots. (sighs) But I think, yeah, Seurat is a very complex artist and he's really fun to work on. There's all kinds of layers of possible avenues for interpretation and richness in his work, I would say. But, you know, he's definitely very aware of the kind of media apparatus around these paintings. And one thing that's really interesting is that he actually makes the central figure of Pozo's circulate in the media. I reproduce in the chapter, he draws a line drawing, which is the line drawing imitates the the little dots in a kind of printing process friendly way. He draws the central figure from his painting poses. And while it's on view, it's actually in an issue of La Vie Modèle, which was the same magazine that published this long series of articles by uh, Paul Delfus called Paris Qui Pose, which was basically kind of like a sociological excavation of the social world of modeling. (laughs) And Seurat was immersed in the history of modeling and all of that kind of like studio trade world and the change in the history of modeling that was taking place as it was no longer taken as given that a model was an unavoidable instrument of 
the most advanced artistic practice. The model was like waning Mm. because of changes in what a painting of a human figure is no longer necessarily the highest form of art. Right. So yes, not only is he aware of printing processes, but like he's making his figures circulate in the media in specific venues, which are meaningful to the content of his painting. It's like the Polaroid square format becoming potent at the moment that Polaroid's utility was surpassed by digital photography. Uh, I also though like this idea of Seurat being aware of the JPEGification of his paintings, or I guess to come back to Julian's question, do you think he was concerned with the scalability of his work? That's really interesting. I think one of the best things that Maya Shapiro ever said about Seurat is that the span from the tiny to the large is one of the many polarities of his art. And he's super, super aware of extremes of scale and oscillations between extremes of scale. Hmm. I think that's essential to his thinking, like in concrete formal ways and also in the broadest philosophical sense, that's central to his art. Uh Uh-huh. That makes sense. Um, I'm interested also, well, we've been talking a lot about the artist's perspective, how, what they're responding to and what they're trying to say. But I'm curious, how were the viewers perceiving these changes? How, what would they have seen in the works that you address in your book? I mean, I think something that's important for me, I guess, about these works is that they're, they're arenas for a collective working through of species consciousness, I would say, and collectively working through and acting out a perceived change in the categorical definition of a human as defined in Europe in relation to European subjects. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the definition of a human is exclusionary by definition and in that sense, profoundly flawed as the work of Sylvia Winter kind of shows resplendently. In that sense, their capacity to be these venues for a collective working through of these ideas, they're not working in the way that Seurat envisions a viewer whose reflective consciousness is automatically bypassed and they're responding automatically like the subject of psychophysics. Mm. But just in the same way that kind of the chromoluminarism of Seurat's technique, the idea that these dots will combine in the eye unconsciously and produce this highly luminous vision, it doesn't work. Uh It's rather that it becomes an occasion to reflect on the idea of what if it did work. Uh And like, I think paradigmatically is the Nijinsky example. So, you know, Freud is the interlocutor for Nijinsky. To give just a word of background on the Nijinsky example, we're speaking here of the Russian artist choreography for and performance of The Afternoon of a Fawn, which he first performed as part of the Ballet Russe in 1912. Nijinsky's performance was a choreographic adaptation, literally billed as a choreographic picture of a score by Claude W.C., which itself was composed in 1894 as a symphonic generation of the classically inspired 1876 Stefan Mallarmé poem by the same name, Afternoon of a Fawn. At the time, Nijinsky was renowned for his strength and dexterity, the altitude of his leaps, the intensity of his expressiveness, almost as if he was the model classical body come alive. Except in this performance, this choreographic picture of Afternoon of a Fawn, all of that drama and torsion is absent. In the book, Emmeline quotes a reviewer at the time who notes that there was no dancing whatsoever, only certain movements and postures. So like Seurat's figures, we see a very deliberate flattening of the human body, but also we see the depiction of a different kind of human interiority, a psychoanalytic interiority, one that is explored through a meta-analysis of biological impulses. Nijinsky begins the performance lying down, as if in some infantile state, or perhaps on the couch in a psychoanalytic session. Like, Nijinsky is acting out a script that he wrote for himself. It's a psychoanalysis and it's a metapsychology that's being performed. So, you know, people are also reflecting on these ideas as they're responding. They're aware, for instance, when they're standing in front of Klimt's mural, that when he's making bird plumage and oscillation, the primary ornamental motif of parts of the frieze, they're aware that this art is designed to evoke the idea of an instinctual automatic response. 
but they're not having it. They're thinking about it. Or maybe they're having both. So most viewers of the clip mural would have been aware of this double stimuli, like the brainstem response to sexy figures and provoking plumage, as well as the psychoanalytic discourse about what these triggers represented via Freud and other contemporaneous thinkers. But with Nijinsky, the audience was caught by surprise. I would say that the the real true scandal of the three works is the Nijinsky work, because I think that to make a work that references kind of infantile sexuality and exhibitionism <laughs> and ends with a pretty obvious allusion to a masturbatory act on stage, that remains somewhat radical, yeah. I would say. And I think, you know, particularly ideas about child sexuality are profoundly fraught still. Mass protests in front of the next staging of the Nijinsky ballet. <laughs> also, just to emphasize, like, just think about how contemporary this was at that time. It's almost like Freudism was almost this, like, new platform for the unconscious. Like, this yeah. whole new science and, like, big conversation that everyone's thinking about and talking about and taking these themes into a performance which is radically different from other performances. Yeah. Also, working on the notation. Also, making sure it's extensively photographed. I mean, this was, like, bleeding edge stuff. Well, interestingly, Nijinsky, much to the chagrin and amazement of scholars, as far as we know, was never filmed dancing. Oh. No, he was photographed extensively, but I believe that he conceived of Afternoon of a Fawn as a looping film, Mm. Um, almost like a gift. (laughs) It's a loop. So it's not entirely novel to have a system of dance notation. Nijinsky's is incredibly complex and hyper-articulated, but more important, I think, was his determination to create a form of notation to make the dance exactly repeatable. It was also rehearsed somewhere between 60 and 120 times. There was no improvisation here. It's a fixed sequence, and I make much of the fact that it was performed twice in a row because there's a long theatrical convention of an encore. But I actually think in this case, the convention of the encore is repurposed to speak to a concept of fixation in psychological terms, which has to do with the increasing turn towards mechanical metaphors for the comprehension of mind in the way that we might see like very obviously in Dada works, like these little like bachelor machines or apparatuses. But, you know, the allusion to the cinematic apparatus and to a form of activation that's mechanical rather than a kind of organic animation in this work is responsive to a thinking through of the psychic apparatus as an inorganic mechanical thing. And that's present in Freud, that's present in all kinds of new psychology that emerged in the late 19th century. And so as that psychology was emerging, there were also these like proto-filmic devices that were also emerging that did operate on the loop. So devices that would show sequential photographs mechanically turned turned, so that it would function like films. And so those technological developments were happening parallel to these psychological developments. And just to come back to sort of the basic thesis of your work, we can talk about all of these developments in art, but they are reflecting this fundamental change in the perception of how the human mind works, the old limitations of the mind, and maybe the new expanded consciousness that technology allows us to see. So maybe there's a new kind of understanding of the brain as a kind of machine, the brain as working in ways that we can't quite understand, but that maybe we can name, like this fixation, like the desire to loop something. And so we see this correspondence between these artworks and the ways that technology is actually allowing us to see differently. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I think the shift that's taking place is acknowledging the interpenetrating animality and technicity of humans. That is really embodied in Afternoon of a Fawn, where we have Nijinsky dressed up as a baby cow, uh, (laughs) not really a fawn, but like a baby cow or a piebald horse, and dancing out this dance that alludes to the idea of the mind as basically a filmic loop activating memories of infantile sexual experiences. So not only do we have this kind of fantasy scape, imagination scape going, but the figures also seem to no longer be bound by gravity. Yes. Like they they seem to be like 
floating. He was also known for like gravity defying leaps well, also, right I beforehand. Guess, yeah. So but I think the leaps are operating within an older paradigm of dance, which is still operating within the kind of using gravity. The leaps are actually paradoxically an acknowledgement of gravity. What happens in fawn is something really interesting. A word that was used a lot in the criticism is sliding. So the way that they, they slide back and forth in a lateral way and the way that they walk it's a kind of really, I mean, who knows exactly how it looked. It's a kind of really weird heel towing and the nymphs move in this line. So it actually looks like someone is like sliding flats back and forth, pulling from either end of the stage. And it's not a typical shifting of weight that happens in walking. It's a weightless sliding form of movement, like things in a groove going back and forth. It's like a return of the Greek chori. It was described as a choreographic picture. I wonder in this, if there is any correlation to contemporary iterations of the human figure or humanoid figures, gaming avatars even. I have an, I mean, I have a general idea. I mean, they have no agency to all of these forces, subconscious, evolutionary, and, and maybe there's an aspiration to artifice, mm, like right. an aspiration to, yeah, becoming artificial, becoming an object, an aspiration to the world of representation or yeah, sim- may- the simulated as opposed even Maybe this is the link because, a- what, exactly, because what I was going to say is like one thing we've been looking at is a tendency towards embracing the face filter trying to be as much like a robot as possible in these TikTok dances. In a way, it's like a Dada machinic type of body, well, except where it has like hips ref- and sweatpants and boobs. And- the refinement of features to the most effective sexual signaling or... Right, um, like it just like Addison Ray like works on the limbic system. Where right. These kinds of right. TikTok stars have like millions and millions of followers. I mean, similarly, it's all like, about and right, targeting the limbic system. targeting the limbic yeah. system. I mean, I don't think Addison Ray is thinking about this. I mean, we have now an era where every individual is creating a depiction of the human and putting it out there. And there are feedback loops which are optimizing certain depictions of the human to become mass cultural figures, to have a kind of cultural dominance, to be a kind of hegemonic figure even. And I mean, I wonder like where the human agency is in this. I mean, I guess I would just say art is no longer whatever fine art was or is, I would probably say was, It is no longer a primary venue for the working out of what it is to be human. And perhaps it once was. Mm -hmm, It's just, and I'm not saying that in some kind of cantankerous, elegiac register, I don't think. I mean, no, I think importantly, the point you make there is that art during the period that you're looking at, these decades around 1900, art was the primary venue for working out what it means to be human. That was the space for that at that time. One of them, them. but a really, really important one. But like, I think the centrality of the human figure to the whole endeavor in the kind of European Beaux-Arts system made that very apparent. Mm -hmm. Like the role of the human figure helps to structure the hierarchy of media too. Obviously, we're working out some kind of definition of what is this thing. And there's a hyper-consciousness around the construction of these objects or performances or like decorated milieu. I mean, maybe it's a kind of consciousness of that role for art on the threshold of its obsolescence. Mm -hmm. Will art maintain that role? I mean, visual art. I don't know. Can you say then what happened? So as the 20th century unfolds in World War I and World War II, the human body undergoes a lot of traumas. You know, we have genocides. We come in contact with machines that for better and for worse, change the way we use our bodies. Can you say what happens to the human body in art? Where does the human figure go? Well, I guess I would say like, I like profoundly don't want to get into a thing of like abstraction versus figuration. I don't think it's that interesting or relevant. I mean, I think, you know, Devin Four has this book, Realism After Modernism, and he has this phrase that I found interesting, the rehumanization of art. Uh Um, His work could address those questions a little bit. What I found interesting about his work was that the quote unquote dehumanization of art is taken for granted. You know, the phrase of Ortega y Gasset. But what I'm interested in 
and I realize that I'm not answering your questions and just redirecting <laughs> towards my project, but I'm consciously doing that because I don't know how Great. to answer your questions. What I'm interested in, people have not extensively unpacked in concrete formal terms what are the strategies that dehumanize a figure when a figure, a human figure is patently present, but it's perceived as dehumanized. What are the concrete formal strategies that actually elicit that response? And I'm kind of saying that it's the removal of certain body language signifiers that function as a visual shorthand for conveying the presence of a reflective consciousness, which has been definitionally constitutive of the concept of the human within a particular visual tradition of European representation. I mean, that's an absolutely fascinating framework to think through the representation of bodies today. Is there a reflective consciousness or not? I would be so interested to hear your reading of Anna Imhoff's work. Uh, in her performances, there are glimpses of these classical bodies, but also these are bodies that are living in today's technological environment. They're bodies that are sort of precuperated by digital media that are in these poses that are optimized for remediation or they're creating images that are particularly mediagenic. So yeah, it would be super interesting to hear your reading of them. But getting back to the work that you do focus on, it's interesting that precisely in the removal of formerly seen as naturalistic attributes, the human gets to retain a sense of interiority. Yeah, I mean, well, I use the phrase and I borrow this phrase from Stephen Jacina. I actually, he's at the Institute for the Study uh, History of Medicine at UCL. I actually don't know how to pronounce his name. It's like Jacina. Um, he uses the phrase naturalization of mind. And I, I kind of say postural anti-naturalism enables naturalization of mind. I mean, I don't like the phrase naturalism. I'm more interested in talking about norms, mm -hmm. visual norms mm -hmm. and visual conventions, because I think that's the more salient point. But by naturalization of mind, he's talking about the Darwinian view that mind is a function of body in the most fundamental sense, and that this postural anti-naturalism is rather the cancellation of a previous postural language that used these strategies, specifically torsion and ponderation, to convey the presence of mindedness or thought uh -huh. or consciousness. So this gets back to the point of negation. The naturalization of mind and the kind of mind is a function of body, the neurological, psychological, modern understanding of the human subject is potentially visually unrepresentable. Right. But it's possible to allude to its presence through the negation of what came before. Is there a visual language for representing this in a positive form? I don't know. Maybe that would dispose of the human figure altogether. This is probably the terrible analogy to make, but I do think of some kind of parallel in the naturalism of like 90s photographers like Wolfgang Tillmans or Anders Erdström who were showing bodies in very like commonplace, non-posed ways um, mm. and how that kind of media language, that kind of representation of the body so used in all of the magazines and media that's associated more with Gen X then mm. was supplanted in the 20s teens by meme drawings and like this very small set of archetypes of like, you know, virgin Chad dichotomy or Stacey's or there's this incredibly limited number of characters, but somehow we believe these, uh, now I'm going to, like I have Tourette's, I'm going to use the word naturalism, um, no. these like more natural depictions of like human emotions. Like in the nineties, you would think that like these Tillman photographs, like very much showed you like a human feeling, but then by the 20 teens, those somehow felt, I mean, this is not but a fair new, parallel. There are new metaphors to live by. New metaphors to live by, yeah. <laughs> there, are like, new, yeah. there are a new yeah. pantheon of, of uh, archetypes, though, I, mean, I, I think, think. Exactly, and I think you said something like over time there's like an erosion of the potency of any kind of convention, and sometimes there is a lot of value in this rift. And I mean, I know we need to wrap up soon, but it is interesting to me that when Seurat showed his grand jat, and then I guess what Pozeuse is also responding to, people were not that shocked by the pointillism the pointillism was seemed like a pretty cool convention that everyone yeah. could get behind, but they were totally shocked and upset by the figures themselves. 
Yeah. I think there is something that in every age is contested and yes. it's something that causes a lot of emotion. Yes, it's psychologically charged. And there has been a lot of anxiety with all the problems of Web2 media. There's a real crisis of how to represent a human. There's no degree of representation which feels satisfying in terms of representing difference. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge leap between the 19th century and now. But do you see any parallels? You know, because you pull out three different artists from three different decades from three different countries to look at this change in the human perception of the self. Are there any lessons that you think would be applicable to this new perception of what it means to be human? Human in a time of machines reading human images as human. Are there any like homologous things that you see happening now that you're like, oh, I recognize that from my work. This debate has happened before. I'm not, I know that probably, I mean, I think, all historians are writing an archaeology of the present, I mm-hmm. guess. And if they're any good, I guess I don't necessarily believe that they're doing so in ways that they're always conscious of. I mean, I always tell my students there's a huge degree of intuition in the research process and doing something that you don't quite know why you're doing. So I basically don't have an answer at all. But there's obviously like a reason that I did. I mean, I am a mediated creature and I did what I did at the time. I mean, I'm also, you know, a product of a specific academic tradition, a rather Eurocentric one in ways that I'm much more aware of looking back on the project from the perspective of 2020 than when I wrote it. And I would write it in a completely different way if I were doing it today. I was 22 when I began this. And Carly, as you can see, I'm not 22 now. Um, (laughs) You look like about 23. So I kind of can't believe you actually spent 10 years Um, writing this or whatever. Well, so I I don't know, but I would hope, like, I'm happy that you invited me on this podcast because I feel like maybe some of your listeners would know. And I definitely think, like, I'm going to reach certain minds or bodies that (laughs) I would not have reached otherwise because I think art history and especially my art history is a relatively narrow field and I like to participate in the world and I like to participate in contemporary life, but maybe I'm doing so in ways that I'm myself, am not capable of understanding. And that's the beauty of writing it down because now someone else can say something. I love that. And I think that is important to note that all art history is also an archaeology of the present. But I noticed there's a perceptual shift that we're going through right now, a perceptual shift in the self. And so it's very exciting to try to connect with somebody who's writing now about a fundamentally important conceptual shift in the human from you know a century ago. Do you think there's like a good analysis of the perceptual shift that you're describing and the kind of contested models that I could read or it's like yet to be written? I think it's yet to be written. I mean, of course, there are like thinkers that are diagramming our time, Akile Mbembe, for instance, or James Bridle, um, but no one's written the perfect history of the near past. I do like Nora Khan's work. She's a critic and also a writer mm-hmm. who thinks about ways of seeing now, ways of machine seeing, machine learning. She's somebody on that short list. But I mean, I also just think that the material terms of the present are changing really rapidly. So I would almost go to someone like Adam Tooze or someone who's looking at supply chains and the global balance of power. I mean, that maybe seems too macro, but it feels like a fundamental that's necessary before we can have any kind of aesthetic theory at this moment. One thing I really appreciate about your book is that it does look beyond the art. I mean, as all good art history does, but I think you referred to it as putting together a detective novel, a case study with all these different clues. I think the broader pattern recognition, the ways you assembled the clues and the associations and looking at the media and the history of what came before, it is a good reminder of the steps you need to apply to the especially phenomenon that's primarily mediated. Yeah. Research takes massive amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it takes maybe a decade or more to even understand what you think. (laughs) Um, I mean, it takes a lot of time, but I feel like you could assemble the pieces for a really recent decade 
in the same kind of way if you gave it the same kind of time. Mm. But I feel like there's this weird way in which like the amount of time that has elapsed since the time that you're investigating sometimes in like some almost like value judgment way is pegged to the amount of time that's deemed worthy of spending on the analysis. And that should not be the case. <laughs> yeah, totally. Too much fear of apophenia, maybe, in academia. You mean doing just embrace the like apophenia. You, you know, maybe you just... <laughs> then you end up like QAnon or, or something. Let, oh, well, I guess that's a bad... <laughs> that's a bad. Yeah, maybe things should be somewhat rigorous, but I think yeah. the pattern recognition oftentimes... I mean, I imagine during this process, you kind of did have to unleash it and then find ways to, to verify it afterwards. Yeah. No, I, I had no idea what I was doing for years at a time. I struggled so much. I, I don't find the writing process easy. Mm. But the one thing that I try not to do, I mean, one of my favorite things in, in my book is like the way that Nietzsche makes fun of the figure of the philosopher. And I could be <laughs> making this quote up. I think I, like sitting at home a la Kant um, and the effort, <laughs> the effort that is um, the effort of thought. He thought that was ridiculous. He said a thought comes when it wants, not when I want. Um, it thinks. And even though I did a lot of sitting at home, I do think in some ways like a thought comes when it wants, not when I want. <laughs> that tracks. But also I think in the time of the hot take, which like still dominates, it is really nice mm -hmm. to think of a writing process that took like, how many years have you been working? On? I don't know. I actually, I was 22 when I started my doctorate at Princeton and I began this project in my first seminar when I wrote a paper on the Wolfman case history and Afternoon of a Fawn with my advisor, Bridget Doherty. And then like, I was so interested in that paper, which was impossible for me to write. And my best friend basically had to come over and put the pieces together because I couldn't really <laughs> do it. And then, you know, I started looking, looking in relation to that and building. And yeah, that was... 2007. Oh my God. Okay. Wow. I mean, what an interesting time to be writing through also. <laughs> oh, I mean, absolutely. if we think about like the media shifts between 2007 and 2022, I mean, we went through at least two or three big movements. Well, also, I mean, it's interesting because when you discovered this book, it was just so resonant with yeah. what you were feeling right now. Yeah. yeah I saw it. I'm like, oh my God, your book is finally coming out. <laughs> I mean, it was my friend in, in a lot of ways, you know? Right, um, right, right. And now I have to find a new one and I have no idea. Why. Yeah, I was going to say. Do you Start have with making account? a TikTok account. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no I, I can't. I would just spend my entire day refreshing. Yeah. I don't respond well to responsive media. Like, I just don't do it. Yeah, no, uh, I don't have one either. In any case, Emlyn, we have to wrap up now, but how do people find out more about you and where to buy your book? You can buy my book on the University of Chicago Press website. You could buy it on Amazon.com. And actually, I can't believe I did this, but I made a website. And <laughs> cool. it's EmmelynButterfieldRosen.com. It's pale pink, and I think it's very nice. <laughs> I'm working with a wonderful uh, web designer, Risa Hoffberger. And you can find lectures that I might give there or other stuff about my book or links to other of my writing. Super. Emlyn, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I can't wait for you to write another book where you put this in the corner and then you pose yourself in front and you write a book about the reception of the <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah. Looking forward to that. <laughs> I Maybe hope we... my press isn't as mean as Taraz was. <laughs> well, well, they can take it up with us, if so. <laughs> Any case. Thank you, Emlyn. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast. And thank you, Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen, for coming on the show. Emmeline's book is Modern Art and the Remaking of the Human Disposition, published by Chicago University Press. You can find out more by going to emmelynbutterfieldrosen.com. A few notes before signing off. Thanks to the engineering magic of Tony MF with some help from Lathe and King Bug, the NM server now features a proprietary new invention, the Viboscope, a bot for manually tracking the community's shifting vibes. Check out the announcements channel for more info on how and where to use it and for our continuing server summaries aggregating the top links, memes, and discussion posts from the past week. 
Don't forget to boost us in the algos. That's all for now. See you next episode.